Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. First up, wanted to share something I saw from Jarl Andre Hubenthal about a project he's been working on for test containers. So what I learned is there's also this other project. It's a, a much broader website that's organized around many different languages. It's called Test Containers. And as you might guess, it's around containers like Docker-style containers that enable and improve testing on different platforms and with lots of different things that you're needing to pull in when you're building and, and running your tests. So Jarl created something around test containers for Elixir. So it's the Elixir-specific one. we got a link to that in the show notes. But what Test Containers for Elixir solves is it removes the need for a local database during testing. You can use the Test Containers Ecto module to start and migrate a Postgres container automatically when the app starts in test mode. It starts up this Docker container in your application EX, but only in test mode. So you, you might be thinking, well, Postgres, like that's I've got that anyway. I don't need that. But like there's a lot of other things it can do. So... One of the ones that I thought was really interesting is they have a proof of concept they're still working on, which is Selenium. Having Selenium doing browser-based testing out of a container is an option, and that's something they're working on. But they also have support for MySQL, Redis, Cassandra, Kafka, Minio, and Ceph. At this time, that's what they have. And like Cade and I have worked on a project where it was a large, sprawling, mature project where this one system, so it was a complete system of many services, had a MySQL database, a Postgres database, a MongoDB database, and Redis. Getting a full system set up was a bit of work. You know, we had scripts to automate all of it. But the idea of needing to have these different pieces all running just to be able to run your tests, it's like, ah, that's where this thing becomes super handy. Next up, Zach Daniel, the creator of the Ash framework, has been hard at work adding bulk operations into the framework. He said it's designed to be plug and play with 90% of your existing actions, and he hopes it'll be ready fairly soon. So if you're interested in reading more about it, we'll drop a link to his post on the Elixir forums. All right, next up, Herman Valesco shared that he's now published 63 tips. That's a lot over on elixirstreams.com. He intends to continue publishing in 2024. He's compiled a list of the top 10 videos I'm going to go through the top five here, and if you want to hear more, you go check out his website. His first one was about Elixir's optional syntax. The short version is that Elixir sometimes allows you to do parentheses. There's some special forms. There's things like if and else and for loops that are all kind of like syntax sugar on top to make it look a little bit more aesthetically pleasing maybe, but it can actually be communicated in a more succinct way, a little bit closer to AST, I think. There's also number two, Elixir's intersection type. So this is him reflecting and explaining the type system that Jose's been talking about and how that works, specifically how that kind of differs from Dialyzer. Number three is live use new streams. If you want to learn a little bit about how that works, opposed to the old and busted, <laughs> it's not busted, but it's the old and busted way of doing things, the Phoenix update append or prepend. Remember, that's the old stuff. Now it's live use streams. He'll talk you through that. Number four is saying goodbye to IO Inspect and hello to DBG. Always great to see a little bit of debug and how-tos. And the last one I'll talk about here is live use new async assigns. 
So lots of Phoenix ones in there, but also lots of good Elixir ones in there. And if you want to see more, he's got 63 total tips to review. So go check them out. They're all really nice. And next up, wanted to share a new Windows-based library that looks interesting. So, you know, we don't commonly see Windows-focused libraries, but we found one that does work on Windows specifically when you're working with Azure services. So if you can imagine being in a company where they have different rules where they say, you know, we'll pick the platform and we are a Microsoft shop and everything is Microsoft. So you have to run on Windows, on Azure. It's the situation where you don't get to pick all of your pieces, but you're like, hey, I still really want to use Elixir. Like that's that's my jam. So I got to have that. So this library can help out people in a situation like that. So what this library is, is it accesses the Windows Data Protection API or DP API, but it lets you do it from Elixir. So the author needed to access the Azure's CLI. It's the MSAL token cache, and that's the Microsoft Authentication Library. Gosh, you know, when you get into like enterprise speak, it's like just letter soup. <laughs> Depappy. <laughs> <laughs> yes. How are you supposed to pronounce those? I don't know. But the problem is that this data that you need, it gets dropped into the user's directory. It's in a file, but on the Azure system under Windows, it's encrypted. So it's in a protected encrypted file that you have to access using the DP API. So with this module, it allows you to access the JSON contents by unwrapping that encryption in like a a simple little script that you could write in your code. So either you could write this as code that runs maybe before your app starts, or you could read it in your application as it's running. So you can do like a file read and then a windows.api.dataprotection.unwrap and just decode and get back into a JSON map style format that data that you need. None of this is too strange. Like there's other platforms that do this, right? You got Mac with Keychain. Mm-hmm. So you're probably accessing Keychain to decrypt something that like Kubernetes, for example, or AWS put it into its own like little hidden folder somewhere. <laughs> That's all that this is doing. <laughs> it just looks weird because it's on Windows. Seeing all those slashes go the wrong way, it's just... uh, (laughs) Those slashes are pointing the wrong way. (laughs) Fly.io. It's a great place to run Elixir apps. With many global regions, a private network that makes it easy to cluster your app, and a powerful CLI, it's something you should really try out. Experience it for yourself at fly.io. Last up, Andrew Stewart shared a video on how he adds magic links to a newly generated Phoenix app. So if you're not familiar, a magic link is just an alternative that you can have to user password authentication where you get a link delivered inside of an email. You get a little encoded token inside of a URL. You click that link and then you get instantly logged into the app. No password required. He shared a little blog post or he shares the commit where he takes this fresh Phoenix app and makes all the changes, including deleting all the password reset, confirmation, delivery of password, all of those live views and functions and all that code related to passwords. And he even shows you how you could patch that straight into your freshly generated Phoenix app if you really wanted to do away with all of your passwords. So that's a pretty neat tip if you're starting from scratch and you're just looking for an easy way to do auth. We had an interesting discussion before we started recording about what this means. So Kate, one of the points you made is that generally, when we think about the way we treat our emails today, 
like our email inbox is our identity. Maybe you could explain that use case that you were sharing to give some ideas like where this applies and, and why I want to do this. Yeah. So Mark was saying, why on earth would I ever do this? This seems like such a bad idea. Just kidding. He didn't <laughs> say that. And I said, well, how is this any different from a password reset link? Like if anybody has access to my email, they have access to all my accounts, whether or not my accounts have passwords. Because if my bank does have a password, all I need to do is click, uh, yes, I am Cade and I forgot my password. Darn it. Short memory. I don't use a password manager. Sorry, please email me a password reset link. They send me a link. The link has a token that lets me reset my password. And now I have access. So it's like your email is your identity. If anyone has access to your email, they have access to anything. This is kind of like one step removed What if you didn't have a password and you just continue to use your email as your identity? If you get signed out because you time out after 60 days, or maybe in the case of a bank, it's like 60 minutes or 60 seconds. I don't know. When you go to sign back in, I will send you a link to your email, which we are all assuming only you have access to with a token that will refresh your session, right? And so, you know, David was saying they lock people out when they try to log in with a failed attempt three times. It's like, well, we don't have that anymore because we don't have passwords. Like we don't need to do password confirmation, password delivery, password reset, password hashing, like kind of feels the same. I just don't have to remember or store yet another password in my password manager. Or if you don't use a password manager, I just don't have to put my same password in yet one more database. Yeah. I've seen people where they don't have a password manager and they just make the habit of, I'm just going to hit the forgot my password every time which is essentially what you're doing with this (laughs) (laughs) magic link thing, right? It's just less embarrassing and more usable. (laughs) It's just formalizing it. (laughs) (laughs) It's just taking away the shame part of resetting your password. (laughs) I like magic links for, you know, like the simplicity of it, I guess. But I, I don't like the flow of it, like the user flow. It forces you out of the app. It bumps you out. Same with SMS second factor, right? Like it kind of bumps you out of the app. You have to go take your eyes. You have to go move it to another device or another app or something. Copy and paste, you know, the SMS thing, which is just annoying. Or click a a link in your email app. I don't like that part. Versus like a proper password manager where you probably, if you're using it well, you're probably also storing your OTP code in there. You know, your one-time passcode in there that, you know, regenerates after uh, every minute, I think, or something. It's time-based. There's a library for that nimble TOTP that can help you with that. But that I appreciate more because, like, it is a second factor, you know, just like your email is, just like your phone can be. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> you can put that in one pass. <laughs> so you can squash all those second factors back down. I think when you put your TOTP generator in your password manager, I think you're removing the second factor out of that two factor <laughs> know, off situation. Yes. <laughs> and you're exchanging it for convenience and, and and it is insanely convenient. Like I have it set up on GitHub and it's like when I go to a sensitive area, it's like putting your password instantly autofills it and put in your your TOTP code or whatever and it instantly fills it out and hit, hits enter for me. It's insanely convenient, right? Yeah. But like I also think we're in the minority. I don't know that a lot of people use password managers. So it's like, I don't know, it's a double-edged sword. You've removed the second factor out of that, <laughs> and you're in the minority of people who use really cool, fancy password managers. 
That's true. Yeah, I never know how I've, I've never decided how to feel about about that part of it. So speaking of, like, I'm I'm kind of excited about pass keys. And would you argue that they're the same kind of concept then? They're they're probably even more minority, right? Like, <laughs> I think it's a cool idea, but just thinking about this magic link idea, like, I I think in, if I wanted to secure a traditional username password website. Like David, you were talking about this idea of, you know, three failed login attempts and we're going to flag the account or, yeah. or do something, right? We're going, to, we're going to assume that there is some kind of credential stuffing attack maybe being done and we just want to block it. Yep. I'm thinking about if someone just keeps saying, I want to log in with this username and they just keep doing that over and over and over, that's like spamming the email, right? If it's generating an email each time, so you're probably like, well, we're not going to do that. We have to time window it or just a different type of complexity maybe you just say i don't know i don't know how how people solve that i don't know you're right like there's different mechanisms abuse mechanisms that you'll have to like protect against right yeah you you lock an account if they're a victim of credential stuffing or something right you want to protect your bill on emails right so you don't want to spam anybody because that'll that'll hurt you as a service too it'd be the same thing with a password reset like if somebody tries to reset their password constantly over and over like it's the same thing it starts sending off emails creating records in your database like you need to protect against both of those situations that's very true on the magic link side what stops a spam bot from like just spamming a bunch of different probably uuids is what i'm guessing that most folks will be using for these uh, magic link tokens, right? These one-time use tokens, but stopping a, a bot from stuffing a bunch of those in, you, you'll have to rate limit those as well. Security's hard, yeah. <laughs> Will the bot have better odds of guessing a token or better odds of guessing a bad password? A password that's been <laughs> leaked on the other five thousand websites that you use it on. Yeah. So I, I've seen this as like a security checkbox kind of thing too. Mm-hmm. And, and, and at several organizations I've been where they will use the, have I been pwned service? Mm-hmm. And there's, there's a way to, without like transferring like the plain text password over to that service, right. there's, you, there's a you way. You hash it with the same algorithm, send them the hash. They'll tell you if they recognize the hash. I don't even think it's the full hash. I think it's like just the first like eight characters of it or something like that so like there is a certainty a confidence level you know and so like when a user is signing up or changing their password or something if you're still using regular passwords you know not not completely going over this magic link idea then you could also check out the have i been pwned service and like reject the user's password and say nope sorry can't use this one because it's been leaked already you'll want to choose a different password in view of that like yeah, just use magic links because you, <laughs> you save an integration, you save that external service API call during user sign up. I say that, but I think there is an option to like download the database as well. So you don't have to make an external service call, but that just takes even longer to you know integrate than you have a delay. I don't know if we're living in the golden age of authentication yet. Maybe we'll get there someday, but like I think the best we have right now are like the the pass keys, like you said, or password managers. And I think like one password and probably a lot of others check the have I been pwned database for you as well across all of your credentials. So you have this like nice security dashboard of like, looks like this website might need to be changed. They do. Yeah. Mm-hmm. One password calls it watchtower. Yeah. So you go to your watchtower, it tells you all your weak passwords, all your pwned passwords, and you just go to those sites and just go update them. These are all the ones that, you know, you don't really go to very often. They don't really hold any sensitive information, but 
still go ahead and update it. And a lot of them now offer second factor authentication anyway. So while I was in there, go ahead and just enable that junk. Stick it into your password. Manager. <laughs> My one password. Yeah. <laughs> make it make it effectively one one factor. It, it, I, you know what? I'll take back what I said. I don't think it completely removes the two out of the FA, right? <laughs> because if somebody got a hold of your password, that doesn't mean they got a hold of your password manager. Right. Right. It still blocks them from getting in. So it still adds another mechanism like these one-time passwords, you're not storing them in databases or they're not, they're not getting leaked when that database gets hacked. Yeah. So it's still like another handshake that you have that they don't. So keep doing it. If you guys remember LastPass, they had the big breach where all of their encrypted vaults were stolen and they have been being exploited. But the problem was, is that they had very low iteration counts on some of their master passwords. <laughs> yeah. On some of the encryptions for the master passwords. So like it was the number of cycles it would run for doing the encryption was like one for some of them. Whoops. And then some of them was like a thousand, you know, so like very low, very low. They're actually still very targeted attacks because you could tell some of the uh, text was not encrypted. So you could tell what they were. So like they were going after crypto. Right. So then people were getting coins emptied, you know, their accounts emptied at different places and getting their, you know, their seed phrases for their wallets and just getting millions of dollars. But that's one of those things where if the password manager itself ever became compromised, then having the one time password two factor thing inside there becomes like it's game over. Yeah. That is the risk when you're putting all your eggs in this one basket. They claim that they're secure and you're doing it because of in the name of security. But, <laughs> you know, I'm using it. So let's just hope for the best. Yeah. Well, you know, a lot of folks will write it in a physical notebook, which is all right. Mm -hmm. You know, physical security requires you to keep that secret and safe like Gandalf. And... But you're not going to have a, a drive-by Russian hacker find it in your house. <laughs> it might be more secure at this point. <laughs> you know, this last week... Someone from China tried to sign into my Apple account Oh, and it asked me to confirm, right? And I was like, well, this is just great. <laughs> <laughs> Authentication is hard, but the moral of the story is if you have a little side project and you don't want to worry about usernames and passwords, you could use magic links if you want. But you know what? Phoenix Gen Auth just generates all the stuff you need for passwords. So whatever. <laughs> <laughs> I did have another question about the magic links and want to get your guys' thoughts Mobile apps, they generally cache the token that's very long lived. So you're not ever having to re-authenticate into your mobile app, right? It's not a mobile app issue per se. Like occasionally you might have to re-log into your mobile app, but otherwise it's just a regular service. Then I think that makes sense too, because the cookies will stay in your session and they might keep, you know, long lived. I think it mainly depends on like your session settings, right? Because like in the new Phoenix auth generator, there are little module attributes at the top that say, when should I let this session expire? And they actually store session tokens in a database. So you can go in and you can say like, hey, I want these magic links to last like 180 days because you know what? Like, I just want you to stay signed in forever. Or you can say, no, this is a banking app. Your session should expire in an hour. 30 seconds. 10 seconds. <laughs> So, so tell me, when you say mobile app, are you talking about native mobile app or just mobile browser? I was thinking of a native mobile app. But yeah, if it's a browser experience, like a website through like a Safari browser mm -hmm. or like a Google Chrome browser, 
I think that's where you're having that really bad experience, right? Where I'm having to log in almost every time I come, maybe. And I have to then jump out over to my email and then I have to click the link in my email and then I have to get back over to my browser. And when you're on mobile, it's like that's not as smooth of an experience. Yeah. I mean, it's okay, but it's no better than like on desktop, right? Except you're not switching the whole screen over because mobile screens are smaller. Mm-hmm. I think the expectation of the device is, is different. Like well, libraries typically have desktop computers that are shared, right? So sessions are probably a little bit more, maybe historically speaking, because of this, right? Like desktops are shared. Sessions are typically shorter to protect from accidents on like a shared device, right? But mobile devices are typically considered to be not shared. They're typically deemed to be more secure in that sense. Maybe that's not true in reality, but that seems <laughs> to be the, the case, right? People are very like, like, oh no, you you can't have you can't use my phone. <laughs> there's too there's too much on there. That's like that means that <laughs> that's about me, right? But with like a, a desktop computer, you're like, ah, oh, no, sure, it's fine. Like, it may they make it kind of easy to go over to like a guest mode or something like that. But mobile mobile phones don't really have that practice as much. The native apps, I think, the way that they work is at least with Android native apps, like there is a SQLite database on all those things, and all these apps are like encrypted to their own keys, right? So apps can't just copy another app's, you know, secrets or something out of the SQLite database. Like they're all scoped to the app. They're all encrypted as well. And so like whatever you store in there is seen as secure. So you can store a user token in there that's long lived and just move on, right? And then you don't really have like a a big concept of expiring stuff in there, not like you do on like browsers, But now that I say all that, like browsers also have encrypted like session stuff, right? I mean, at least I think that's default now. I think they're all encrypted. I think they're all like to the domain, but maybe they're more complicated. And so people are just skittish and just don't put long live stuff, long live tokens in there. But someone out there most likely knows more than me on this, on this domain, (laughs) but, but I think it's more practice difference on like native apps. Like maybe they just started that way. And so there's, there's less ickiness about long-lived tokens, you know, not expiring on on native apps requiring you to sign in again. Mm. Yeah. Whenever I get kicked out of a mobile app, I'm like, Ugh, <laughs> I'm not signing back in. I'm just going to delete the app. Uninstall. Like my Roomba <laughs> app has been signed out for months now and I'm just like, oh, I guess I better delete the app. Well, it's been months since you used it. Uh, apparently I don't need it. You know, <laughs> so uninstall. Well, thanks for sharing your input and perspectives on the Magic Link stuff. It's something I think I've been considering and seeing that resource. And there's a YouTube video also, along with Andrew Stewart's post that I think I'll check out. Something to consider. Authentication is always something that we're uh, needing to revisit and see how we can strengthen. But that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.